The following is a message by Dr. David Van Drunen from Westminster Seminary, California. For more information about this message or about Westminster Seminary, please visit us online at wscal.edu or call us at 888-480-8474. That's online at wscal.edu or call us at 888-480-8474. We're continuing this semester on Thursdays with the faculty uh, series from the Gospel of John, and I will read uh, this morning John 18, verses 33 through 37. John 18, verses 33 through 37. This is the word of God. So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, Do you say this of your own accord, or did others say say it to you about me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. Then Pilate said to him, So you are a king. Jesus answered, You say that I I am a king? For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. This ends our reading of God's word. For someone with my own research and writing interest, it seemed like in a series on John, this is the text that I should choose. Last semester, I resisted that um, obvious choice, but we're going through John again this semester, so what could I do? My kingdom is not of this world. It seems like this should be an easy text for someone with my interests. But in fact, I don't think it's a very easy text at all. Maybe in some of it, uh, it, that was striking to me in some respects because I spent a couple days last week uh, at a conference at a law school and was spending most of my time with law professors. And if you think about what a law professor would think of as an ideal trial, what would it look like? You would have a very clear focus on getting exactly to the relevant issues, the right questions, getting uh, exactly the kind of uh, focus you need in order uh, to uh, get to the, uh, the pertinent facts of the case. And you read this short account of this trial scene, and the parties don't really seem even to be at times talking to each other or answering each other's questions. Very hard to analyze this in any kind of ordinary legal way. Yet when we consider what Jesus actually says about his kingdom, maybe it makes some sense that this sort of trial is not the kind of way, uh, an ordinary trial is not the way you get to the truth of Jesus' kingdom. Now, the Gospel of John doesn't really have a lot of teaching, at least explicit teaching, on the kingdom. 
which is different from the three synoptic gospels in which there are all sorts of parables uh, about the kingdom. And yet it may be that what Jesus says here is the single most memorable statement that he makes in the four gospels about the nature of his kingdom. Now, one of the striking things, it seems to me, about Jesus' statement here about his kingdom, in comparison with all of those kingdom parables that he tells elsewhere, is it's the contrast of this statement to the earthy nature of so many of his parables. Jesus, in the other gospels, says that his kingdom is like a mustard seed. It is like a fishing net. It's like a treasure, treasure buried in a field. It's like a field to be sown. Very earthly sorts of images that Jesus uses. And here he says that his kingdom is not of this world. Well, as we keep that in mind as to try to understand what Jesus is saying, let's go back to verse 33. And to see if we can make some sense of this exchange that we find between Pilate and our Lord. Now, Pilate begins, after Jesus has been brought into his presence, Pilate says to him, Are you the king of the Jews? That's a really interesting way to begin this encounter and this trial of sorts. It's interesting in a number of respects. One question that we may have is, is Pilate really serious in this question? What is his point in asking this? We're not allowed to hear the tone in which Pilate asks this. It's always helpful to hear the tone in which people ask questions, understand what they're really getting at, or why they want to know what they are asking. So, can we read between the lines to try to get at Pilate's attitude? Well, it seems, if we read the previous verses, that we might suspect that Pilate is probably in a very bad mood. Pilate, for sure, does not want to be here doing what he's doing. It's late on a Thursday night. Now, if we go back to verse 30, uh, well, going back to verse 28, we find that Jesus uh, is led uh, to the governor's uh, headquarters, Pilate, in verse 29, comes out uh, to meet them, asks what kind of accusation they bring against this man. All right, that makes sense. Pilate wants to know what's the accusation that these Jewish officials have against Jesus. And the Jewish officials answer him, if this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. Which you notice doesn't answer that question, does it? Why would they have answered in that way? it would seem that they would only answer that way if Pilate had asked his question in a way that expressed a high degree of skepticism and wariness about the whole idea of them bringing Jesus before them. Pilate must have asked this in a way that said, what are you stupid people doing bringing this guy before me? And so instead of asking, answering his question... They basically try to justify the fact that they're here in the first place. Well, Pilate says in verse 31, Take him yourselves, judge him by your own law. See what I mean about Pilate probably not being in a very good mood, not really wanting to be here. 
I don't want to see him. You just go and do with him as you wish. But the Jews respond to him that it's not lawful for us to put anyone to death. So here, Pilate now knows that they want him executed. And they don't have authority to handle a capital case on their own. Pilate is going to have to hear this case after all. And so Pilate, in verse 33, enters his headquarters and asks Jesus this question. Are you the king of the Jews? In light of this background, it's hard to take this overly seriously, at least as a straightforward legal question. Perhaps Pilate is expressing something of amusement, something of his irritation of being here. But... It is pretty striking that this question really sort of comes out of the blue. In John 18 to this point, no one has said anything about Jesus being a king. Jesus hasn't claimed it. The Jewish officials haven't said anything to Jesus about it. There's been no charge made specifically about Jesus being a king. But perhaps the thing that is most striking is the absolute absurdity of the question judged by any kind of worldly, earthly standards. Think about this man who stands before Pilate. Early in John 18, he has been arrested, and he has been bound. He hasn't slept all night. He has been, in verse 22, he has been struck when he stood before the Jewish officials. Perhaps he's already bruised and bleeding He's been dragged before Pilate, presumably still bound. Jesus must have looked like a great picture of a king. I bet he looked good standing before Pilate. Pilate asked him, are you a king? Jesus responds in verse 34. Do you say this of your own accord or did others say this to you about me? Now here we begin to see this this pattern of people not actually responding to each other. Jesus doesn't answer Pilate's question. Pilate returns a question with a question. You might say this is a rather cheeky response. When you're brought before trial, you're standing before the most powerful man uh, here in this region, and you decide, in a sense, to expose the absurdity of his question, to expose the non-seriousness of Pilate's question. Is this your own idea, or did someone else say this to you about me? So Pilate answers back to Jesus in verse 35, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? It seems that Pilate here is reasserting authority. Jesus is not going to be the one asking questions here. Pilate is. So now Pilate asks what we would have expected perhaps in the first place. What have you done? This would seem to be relevant on a trial. Figure out what Jesus actually has done and render a verdict with respect to that. So Jesus responds now back to Pilate in verse 36. Does he answer Pilate's question, what have you done? No, of course not. He doesn't answer Pilate's question. At least not his Question in verse 35. It seems that perhaps Jesus is actually going back to Pilate's original question. Are you a king? He didn't answer it the first time. 
But now it seems that he's returning to this. Because what he says in verse 36 is, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from this world. Yes, Jesus is a king. He's a king because he has a kingdom. But Pilate is going to have a hard time recognizing Jesus' kingship or the kingdom that he governs because no one is fighting. No one's fighting to defend his rule. It's hard to recognize the kind of kingship that Jesus exercises. Now, as we think about verse 36 and what Jesus says here about his kingdom, I ask you to think back again to the comparison with the parables in the other Gospels. As I mentioned earlier, in those parables, Jesus so often proceeds by saying what his kingdom is like. And he uses all sorts of earthy images to help us to understand what his kingdom is like. But you understand that when you say that something is like something else, you're not saying that it is that thing. We understand that Jesus' kingdom may be like a mustard seed, but Jesus' kingdom is not a mustard seed. Jesus' kingdom may be like a net, but it's not a net. Here, Jesus doesn't tell us what his kingdom is like. He tells us what his kingdom is. I mean, you might quibble and say he tells us what his kingdom is not, but by telling us what his kingdom is not, he tells us what his kingdom is. Not like but is. His kingdom is a kingdom not of this world. His kingdom may be manifest here in this world, and it is manifest here in this world, but his kingdom is a new creation kingdom. It is a kingdom of the age to come. It is a kingdom however manifest here, that does not have its origin here, and it cannot be defined by the standards of worldly kingdoms. And that's something worth thinking about for a moment. This kingdom, which Jesus rules, is not a kingdom that can be judged by worldly kingdom standards. And Jesus' point here is not simply perhaps not even primarily, that his kingdom cannot be judged according to the sinful standards of worldly kingdoms. That might be the way that we are inclined immediately to take it. My kingdom is different because it's not a sinful kingdom. It's not morally corrupted like worldly kingdoms are. That's true, but I don't think that's exactly the point that Jesus is making Jesus' kingdom is not like worldly kingdoms, not simply in being morally pure, but it has different standards even from worldly kingdoms when they're operating properly. It is not like earthly kingdoms even when they're doing their own proper work. You see what Jesus, how Jesus compares his kingdom to earthly kingdoms, worldly kingdoms, is that in worldly kingdoms... The citizens of those kingdoms, the servants of the king, fight 
in order to protect their king, in order to defend their kingdom. Is that bad? Is that sinful for the citizens of earthly kingdoms to fight to defend their king? To fight to defend an unjust accusation being leveled against their ruler? No. In fact, that is exactly that's part of the proper work of earthly kingdoms. God gave this sword to earthly kingdoms. He gave it to them in Genesis 9, reaffirms it in, in Romans 13, bearing the sword against injustice, defending the claims of right. That's a good thing for earthly kingdoms to do. You see, Jesus is not comparing his kingdom to sinful worldly kingdoms. He's comparing his kingdom to worldly kingdoms doing their proper work. Well, in verse 37, Pilate says, So you are a king. Perhaps Pilate is responding rhetorically here. Glad that he has some confirmation from his original question. Ah, ah, you are a king, aren't you? And Jesus replies, You said it. I am a king. But then Jesus says something that, again, is unexpected. Doesn't really seem to follow exactly the logic that we might expect. Nothing really has so far. Jesus says in verse 37... For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world. And we're asking ourselves, for what? He says, just in the Greek, for this I came into the world. For this I was born. And we ask, for what? And then he says, to testify to the truth, or to hear, to bear witness to the truth. Whoever, everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. And again, it doesn't seem to have a logical flow of what's going on here. He's talking about his kingship, about the nature of his kingdom, and then he says, I have come into the world for this, to testify to the truth. Is Jesus getting off track here? Well, there's something, in fact, very appropriate about what Jesus says in a number of different respects. There are many things that are appropriate. For one thing... Just think about the idea of testifying to the truth. When you think of God's law and the truth, what do you think of? You think of the ninth commandment. But the ninth commandment is not put in, ninth commandment could read in different ways. The ninth commandment doesn't say, do not lie. The ninth commandment says, you shall not bear false testimony against your neighbor. It takes us to a court scene, takes us to a trial. The ninth commandment is put in judicial context. That seems appropriate in the fact that here we are in a judicial context in which, at least from the judge's perspective, the seeking of truth does not seem to be of highest importance or priority right at this point. But perhaps even more pertinent for our purposes here. We note that Jesus... As the kind of king he is, governing the kind of kingdom he rules, does not come, did not come to fight with earthly weapons, to build a kingdom to be measured by worldly standards, even good worldly standards, but he comes to reveal the truth. He comes to reveal the truth about his father, 
He comes to reveal the way of truth about the way of salvation. He comes to make known the truth that will make them free, as he's already explained. Do you remember the words earlier in John, John 8, verses 31 and 32? Jesus says, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. It is through the truth that Jesus proclaims that there is liberty. When we think of liberty, ordinarily we think of politics, political liberty. And there is such a thing as political liberty. It's not bad to think in those terms, in those worldly standards. But the liberty that Jesus brings through his truth, the truth about his Father, the truth about himself, the truth about the way of salvation brings a liberty, a freedom that is far greater than any political liberty, any political liberation ever could. Brothers and sisters, by faith in Christ and by membership in the church that he has established, even now we have a share in this new creation kingdom that Jesus rules that Jesus has established. This text before us is an important reminder that Christ's kingdom is not designed to take a political form here and now, armed with a sword to see justice done. There's a place for that. There's a place for wielding the sword and seeing that justice is done. But it is not the work of Christ's kingdom. If we wish to participate in the work of Christ's kingdom, the kingdom he proclaims here, we do so by testifying to the truth that is found in Christ. It's no coincidence that the rest of the New Testament instructs us that the church is not given the sword, is not given the weapons of this world. The church is given weapons, and its chief weapon is what? It's the word of God. It is an instrument for bearing testimony. Testimony to the truth by the sword of the spirit. It is a weapon which brings liberation. A liberation which politics never can. The world, as it looks at us, will want to evaluate us in worldly kingdom terms. And we will always be tempted to let ourselves be evaluated in worldly kingdom terms and judge ourselves by worldly kingdom terms. But this text is a reminder that we ought not to do so. This text is a reminder that our theology of the kingdom of Christ is indeed an important question. That having the right conception of the kingdom of Christ makes a whole lot of difference for how we understand our role in this world, the nature of the church, and how we expect people to be liberated from that which truly binds them. May we remember that bearing the sword and doing justice has its place. May we also remember that the work of Christ's kingdom manifests now in the church is not to be carried out with the kind of weapons 
but do justice in this world. We are called to hold fast to the testimony of Jesus Christ, to proclaim the truth that he revealed, and to make his word known, to do that which no earthly weapon ever can. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, how we thank you for this text from your word. We know that it comes in the midst of this great drama of our Lord, your eternal Son, being brought before earthly authorities to be judged, to be falsely accused, to be unjustly condemned, to bear the wrath of man and the wrath of God for our poor sake. How we thank you, O Lord, that even in the hour of his greatest agony, that he continued to bear witness to the truth, that he continued to make known the ways of his kingdom. Indeed, that one of the last things that we hear from our Lord's lips in his earthly ministry was that his kingdom is not of this world. As we seek to be faithful servants of our crucified and resurrected King, Lord, may we conduct ourselves in ways that are fitting as servants of such a kingdom, as heirs of such a kingdom, as citizens of such a kingdom. May we fight for our Lord. But may we fight not as the world fights. May we fight holding fast to your word of truth, even in the midst of ridicule or scorn, opposition, even opposition that is undergirded by the power of the sword. And we pray, O Lord, that you would continue to send forth your word with your spirit, by the power of your spirit, and that it may continue to liberate Liberate people not from the shackles that the world can always see, but from the shackles of the power and the guilt and the misery of sin. For we know that this is the true work of your kingdom. We pray that that kingdom may be fully revealed in all of its glory soon. For we pray, come Lord Jesus, our exalted King. We do pray this in his name. Amen. You are dismissed. Copyright 2014, Westminster Seminary, California. All rights reserved. You are permitted to reproduce and distribute this material in any format, provided that you do not alter the wording in any way and that you do not charge a fee beyond the cost of reproduction. For web posting, a link to this document on our website is preferred.